0: The Essays of Francis Bacon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Essays or Counsels, Civil and Moral, of Francis Lord Verulam, Viscount Saint Albans. Essay One, of Truth. What is truth? said jesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. Certainly there be that delight in giddiness, and counted a bondage to fix a belief, affecting free will in thinking as well as in acting. And though the sex of philosophers of that kind be gone, yet there remain certain discoursing wits, which are of the same veins, though there be not so much blood in them as was in those of the ancients. But it is not only the difficulty and labor which men take in finding out of truth, nor again, that when it is found, it imposeth upon men's thoughts, that doth bring lies in favor, but a natural, though corrupt love of the lie itself. One of the later school of Grecians examineth the matter, and is at a stand to think what should be in it, that men should love lies, where neither they make it for pleasure, as with poets, nor for advantage, as with the merchant, but for the lie's sake. But I cannot tell. This same truth is a naked and open daylight that doth not show the masks and mummeries and triumphs of the world half so stately and daintily as candlelights. Truth may, perhaps, come to the price of a pearl that showeth best by day, but it will not rise to the price of a diamond or carbuncle that showeth best in varied lights. A mixture of a lie doth ever add pleasure, Doth any man doubt that if there were taken out of men's minds vain opinions, flattering hopes, false valuations, imaginations as one would, and the like, but it would leave the minds of a number of men, poor, shrunken things, full of melancholy and indisposition, and unpleasing to themselves? One of the fathers, in great severity, called posy venum daemonum, because it fireth the imagination, and yet it is but the shadow of a lie." But it is not the lie that passeth through the mind, but the lie that sinketh in and settleth in that doth the hurt, such as we spake of before. But howsoever these things are thus in men's depraved judgments and affections, yet truth, which only doth judge itself, teacheth that the inquiry of truth, which is the love-making or wooing of it, the knowledge of truth, which is the presence of it, and the belief of truth, which is the enjoying of it, is the sovereign good of human nature. The first creature of God in the works of the days was the light of sense. The last was the light of reason. His Sabbath work ever since is the illumination of his spirit. First he breathed light upon the face of the matter or chaos. Then he breathed light into the face of man. And still he breatheth and inspireth light into the face of his chosen. The poet, that beautified the sect that was otherwise inferior to the rest, saith yet excellently well, It is a pleasure to stand upon the shore, and to see ships tossed upon the sea, a pleasure to stand in the window of a castle, and to see a battle and the adventures thereof below. But no pleasure is comparable to the standing upon the vantage ground of a hill, a hill not to be commanded, and where the air is always clear and serene, and to see the errors and wanderings and mists and tempests in the vale below. So always that this prospect be with pity, and not with swelling or pride. Certainly it is heaven upon earth to have a man's mind move in charity, rest in providence, and turn upon the poles of truth. To pass from theological and philosophical truth to the truth of civil business, it will be acknowledged, even by those that practice it not, that clear and round dealing is the honor of man's nature, and that mixture of falsehoods is like alloy and coin of gold and silver, which may make the metal work the better, but it embaseth it. For these winding and crooked courses are the goings of the serpent, which goeth basely upon the belly, and not upon the feet. There is no vice that doth so cover a man with shame, as to be found false and perfidious." And therefore Montaigne saith prettily, when he inquired the reason why the word of the lie should be such a disgrace, and such an odious charge, saith he, If it be well weighed, to say that a man lieth is as much to say as that he is brave towards God, and a coward towards men. For a lie faces God, and shrinks from man. Surely the wickedness of falsehood, and breach of faith, cannot possibly be so highly expressed as in that it shall be the last peal to call the judgments of God upon the generations of men, it being foretold that when Christ cometh, he shall not find faith upon the earth. Essay 2. Of Death. Men fear death as children fear to go in the dark, and as that natural fear in children is increased with tales, so is the other. Certainly the contemplation of death, as the wages of sin and the passage to another world, is holy and religious, but the fear of it as a tribute due unto nature is weak. Yet in religious meditations there is sometimes mixture of vanity and of superstition. You shall read in some of the friars' books of mortification that a man should think with himself what the pain is if he have but his fingers in pressed or tortured, and thereby imagine what the pains of death are, when the whole body is corrupted and dissolved, when many times death passeth with less pain than the torture of a limb, for the most vital parts are not the quickest of sense. And by him that spake only as a philosopher and natural man, it is well said, pompa mortis magis teret, quam mors ipsa groans and convulsions and a discolored face, and friends weeping, and blacks and obsequies, and the like, show death terrible. It is worthy the observing that there is no passion in the mind of man so weak, but it mates and masters the fear of death. And therefore death is no such terrible enemy, when a man hath so many attendants about him that can win the combat of him. Revenge triumphs over death. Love slights it. Honor aspireth to it, grief flieth to it, fear preoccupateth it. Nay, we read, after Otho the emperor had slain himself, pity, which is the tenderest of affections, provoked many to die out of mere compassion to their sovereign, and as the truest sort of followers. Nay, Seneca adds niceness and satiety. Cogita quam diu, iedem feseres. Mori velle non tantum fortis aut miser, said iteum, fastidiosus potest. A man would die, though he were neither valiant nor miserable, only upon a weariness to do the same thing so oft, over and over. It is no less worthy to observe how little alteration in good spirits the approaches of death make. For they appear to be the same men till the last instant." Augustus Caesar died in a compliment. Livia, conjugi nostri memor, vive et vel. Tiberius in dissimulation, as Tacitus saith of him, jam Tiberium verus et corpus non dissimulatio deseribent. Vespian in a jest, sitting upon the stool, ut puto Deus fio. Galba with a sentence feri, si ex uri, sit populi romani, holding forth his neck, septimius severus in dispatch, adestes si quid, mihi aristat agendum, and the like. Certainly the Stoics bestowed too much cost upon death, and by their great preparations may it appear more fearful. Better, saith he, qui finum vitei, Extremum inter munera ponet naturae. It is as natural to die as to be born, and to a little infant perhaps the one is as painful as the other. He that dies in an earnest pursuit is like one that is wounded in hot blood, who, for the time, scarce feels the hurt, and therefore a mind fixed and bent upon somewhat that is good doth avert the dolors of death. But above all believe it the sweetest canticle is nunc dimittis when a man hath obtained worthy ends and expectations death hath this also that it openeth the gate to good fame and extinguisheth envy extinctus amabitur idem essay 3 of unity in religion Religion being the chief band of human society, it is a happy thing when itself is well contained within the true band of unity. The quarrels and divisions about religion were evils unknown to the heathen. The reason was because the religion of the heathen consisted rather in rites and ceremonies than in any constant belief. For you may imagine what kind of faith theirs was when the chief doctors and fathers of their church were the poets'. But the true God hath this attribute, that he is a jealous God, and therefore his worship and religion will endure no mixture nor partner. We shall therefore speak a few words concerning the unity of the church, what are the fruits thereof, what the bounds, and what the means. The fruits of unity, next unto the well-pleasing of God, which is all in all, are two, the one Towards those that are without the church, the other towards those that are within. For the former, it is certain that heresies and schisms are of all others the greatest scandals, yea, more than corruption of manners. For as in the natural body, a wound or solution of continuity is worse than a corrupt humor, so in the spiritual. So that nothing doth so much keep men out of the church and drive men out of the church as a breach of unity. And therefore, whensoever it cometh to pass that one saith, Ecce in deserto, another saith, Ecce in penetralibus. That is, when some men seek Christ in the conventicles of heretics, and others in an outward face of the church, that voice had need continually to sound in men's ears, Nolite exadere, go not out. The doctor of the Gentiles the propriety of whose vocation drew him to have a special care of those without, saith, If an heathen come in and hear you speak with several tongues, will he not say that you are mad? And certainly it is little better when atheists and profane persons do hear of so many discordant and contrary opinions in religion. It doth avert them from the church, and maketh them to sit down in the chair of the scorners." It is but a light thing to be vouched in so serious a matter, but yet it expresseth well the deformity. There is a master of scoffing that in his catalogue of books of a feigned library sets down this title of a book, The Morris Dance of Heretics. For indeed, every sect of them hath a diverse posture, or cringe by themselves which cannot but move derision in worldlings and depraved politics, who are apt to condemn holy things. As for the fruit towards those that are within, it is peace, which containeth infinite blessings. It establisheth faith. It kindleth charity. The outward peace of the church distilleth into peace of conscience, and it turneth the labors of writing and reading of controversies into treaties of mortification and devotion. Concerning the bounds of unity, the true placing of them importeth exceedingly. There appear to be two extremes. For to certain zealants, all speech of pacification is odious. Is it peace, Jehu? What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. Peace is not the matter, but following and party. Contrariwise, certain Laodiceans and lukewarm persons think they may accommodate points of religion by middle way, and taking part of both and witty reconcilements, as if they would make an arbitrament between God and man. Both these extremes are to be avoided, which will be done if the League of Christians penned by our Savior himself were in two clauses thereof, soundly and plainly expounded. He that is not with us is against us, and again, he that is not against us is with us that is, if the points of fundamental and of substance in religion were truly discerned and distinguished from points not merely of faith, but of opinion, order, or good intention. This is a thing may seem to many a matter trivial, and done already, but if it were done less partially, it would be embraced more generally. Of this I may give only this advice according to my small model. Men ought to take heed of rending God's church by two kinds of controversies. The one is, when the matter of the point controverted is too small and light, not worth the heat and strife about it, kindled only by contradiction. For as it is noted, by one of the fathers, Christ's coat indeed had no seam, but the church's vesture was of diverse colors, whereupon he saith, in veste varietis sit, sisura, non-sit. They be two things, unity and uniformity. The other is, when the matter of the point controverted is great, but it is driven to an over-great subtlety and obscurity, so that it becometh a thing rather ingenious than substantial. A man that is of judgment and understanding shall sometimes hear ignorant men differ, and know well within himself that those which so differ mean one thing, and yet they themselves would never agree." And if it come so to pass in that distance of judgment which is between man and man, shall we not think that God above that knows the heart doth not discern that frail men in some of their contradictions intend the same thing, and accepteth of both? The nature of such controversies is excellently expressed by St. Paul in the warning and precept that he giveth concerning the same. De vita profanus vocum novitates et Oppositionis, falsi nominis scientia. Men create oppositions which are not, and put them into new terms, so fixed as whereas the meaning ought to govern the term, the term in effect governeth the meaning. There be also two false pieces or unities, the one, when the piece is grounded but upon an implicit ignorance, for all colors will agree in the dark the other when it is pieced up upon a direct admission of contraries in fundamental points. For truth and falsehood in such things are like the iron and clay in the toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image. They may cleave, but they will not incorporate. Concerning the means of procuring unity, men must be aware that in the procuring or reuniting of religious unity they do not dissolve and deface the laws of charity and of human society. There be two swords amongst Christians, the spiritual and temporal, and both have their due office and place in the maintenance of religion; but we may not take up the third sword, which is Mahomet's sword, or like unto it, that is, to propagate religion by wars, or by sanguinary persecutions to force consciences, except it be in cases of overt scandal, blasphemy, or intermixture of practice against the state much less to nourish seditions, to authorize conspiracies and rebellions, to put the sword into the people's hands and the like, tending to the subversion of all government, which is the ordinance of God. For this is but to dash the first table against the second, and so to consider men as Christians, as we forget that they are men. Lucretius the poet, when he beheld the act of Agamemnon that could endure the sacrificing of his own daughter, exclaimed, "Tantum religio potuit suedere malorum." What would he have said if he had known of the massacre in France or the powder treason of England? He would have been seven times more epicure and atheist than he was, for as the temporal sword is to be drawn with great circumspection in cases of religion, so it is a thing monstrous to put it into the hands of the common people. Let that be left unto the Anabaptists and other furies. It was great blasphemy when the devil said, I will ascend and be like the highest, but it is greater blasphemy to personate God and bring him in saying, I will descend and be like the prince of darkness. And what is it better to make the cause of religion to descend to the cruel and execrable actions of murdering princes, butchering of people, and subversion of states and governments. Surely this is to bring down the Holy Ghost instead of the likeness of a dove in the shape of a vulture or raven, and set out of the bark of a Christian church a flag of a bark of pirates and assassins. Therefore it is most necessary that the church, by doctrine and decree, princes by their swords, and all learnings, both Christian and moral, as by their mercury rod, do damn and send to hell forever, those facts and opinions tending to the support of the same, as hath been already in good part done. Surely in councils concerning religion, that council of the apostle would be prefixed era hominis nonimplet justitium Dei." And it was a notable observation of a wise father, and no less ingeniously confessed that those which held and persuaded pressure of consciences were commonly interested therein, themselves, for their own ends. Essay 4 Of Revenge Revenge is a kind of wild justice, which the more man's nature runs to, the more ought law to weed it out. For as for the first wrong, it doth but offend the law, but the revenge of that wrong putteth the law out of office. Certainly in taking revenge a man is but even with his enemy, but in passing it over he is superior, for it is a prince's part to pardon. And Solomon, I am sure, saith, it is the glory of a man to pass by an offense. That which is past is gone and irrevocable. And wise men have enough to do with things present and to come, therefore they do but trifle with themselves that labor in past matters. There is no man doth a wrong for the wrong's sake, but thereby to purchase himself profit or pleasure or honor or the like. Therefore, why should I be angry with a man for loving himself better than me? And if any man should do wrong merely out of ill nature, why... Yet it is but like the thorn or briar, which prick and scratch, because they can do no other. The most tolerable sort of revenge is for those wrongs which there is no law to remedy. But then let a man take heed, the revenge be such as there is no law to punish. Else a man's enemy is still beforehand, and it is two for one. Some, when they take revenge, are desirous the party should know whence it cometh. This is the more generous, for the delight seemeth to be not so much in doing the hurt as in making the party repent, but base and crafty cowards are like the arrow that flieth in the dark. Cosmas, duke of Florence, had a desperate saying against perfidious or neglecting friends, as if those wrongs were unpardonable. You shall read, saith he, that we are commanded to forgive our enemies." but you never read that we are commanded to forgive our friends. But yet the spirit of Job was in a better tune. Shall we, saith he, take good at God's hands, and not be content to take evil also? And so of friends in a proportion. This is certain, that a man that studieth revenge, keeps his own wounds green, which otherwise would heal and do well. Public revenges are for the most part fortunate, as that for the death of Caesar, for the death of Pertinax, for the death of Henry the Third of France, and many more. But in private revenges it is not so. Nay, rather, vindictive persons live the life of witches, who, as they are mischievous, so end they unfortunate. Essay 5. Of Adversity. It was in high speech of Seneca, after the manner of the Stoics, that the good things which belong to prosperity are to be wished, but the good things that belong to adversity are to be admired. Bonum rerum secundarum optibilia, adversarum mirabilia. Certainly if miracles be the command over nature, they appear most in adversity. It is yet a higher speech of his than the other, much too high for a heathen, it is true greatness to have in one the frailty of a man and the security of a god. Viri magnum habiri fragilitatem hominis, securitatem dei. This would have done better in posy, where transcendences are more allowed. And the poets indeed have been busy with it. For it is in effect the thing which figured in that strange fiction of the ancient poets, which seemeth not to be without mystery, nay, and to have some approach to the state of a Christian, that Hercules, when he went to unbind Prometheus, by whom human nature is represented, sailed to the length of the great ocean in an earthen pot or pitcher, lively describing Christian resolution that saileth in the frail bark of the flesh, through the waves of the world. But to speak in a mean, the virtue of prosperity is temperance, the virtue of adversity is fortitude, which in morals is the more heroical virtue. Prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament, adversity is the blessing of the new, which carrieth the greater benediction and the clearer revelation of God's favor. Yet even in the Old Testament, if you listen to David's harp, you shall hear as many hearse-like airs as carols. And the pencil of the Holy Ghost hath labored more in describing the afflictions of Job than the felicities of Solomon. Prosperity is not without many fears and distastes, and adversity is not without comforts and hopes. We see in needleworks and embroideries it is more pleasing to have a lively work upon a sad and solemn ground than to have a dark and melancholy work upon a lightsome ground. Judge, therefore, of the pleasure of the heart by the pleasure of the eye. Certainly virtue is like precious odors, most fragrant when they are incensed or crushed. For prosperity doth best discover vice, but adversity doth best discover virtue. Essay 6. Of Simulation and dissimulation dissimulation is but a faint kind of policy or wisdom for it asketh a strong wit and a strong heart to know when to tell the truth and to do it therefore it is the weaker sort of politics that are the great dissemblers tacitus saith livia sorted well with the arts of her husband and dissimulation of her son attributing arts or policy to augustus and dissimulation to Tiberius. And again, when Musianus encourageth Vespian to take arms against Vitellius, he saith, We rise not against the piercing judgment of Augustus, nor the extreme caution or closeness of Tiberius. These properties of arts or policy, and dissimulation or closeness, are indeed habits and faculties several, and to be distinguished. For if a man have that penetration of judgment, as he can discern what things are to be laid open, and what to be secreted, and what to be showed at half-lights, and to whom and when, which indeed are arts of state, and arts of life, as Tacitus well calleth them, to him a habit of dissimulation is a hindrance and a poorness. But if a man cannot obtain to that judgment, then it is left to him generally to be close and a dissembler. For where a man cannot choose or vary in particulars, there it is good to take the safest and wariest way in general, like the going softly by one that cannot well see. Certainly the ablest men that ever were have had all an openness and frankness of dealing, and a name of certainty and veracity. But then they were like horses well managed, for they could tell passing well when to stop or turn, and at such times, when they thought the case indeed required dissimulation, if then they used it, it came to pass that the former opinion, spread abroad, of their good faith and clearness of dealing, made them almost invisible. There be three degrees of this hiding and veiling of a man's self. The first, closeness, reservation, and secrecy. When a man leaveth himself without observation, or without hold to be taken, what he is. The second, dissimulation in the negative, when a man lets false signs and arguments that he is not that he is. And the third, simulation in the affirmative, when a man industriously and expressly feigns and pretends to be that he is not. For the first of these, secrecy. It is indeed the virtue of a confessor, and assuredly the secret man heareth many confessions for who will open himself to a blab or a babbler? But if a man be thought secret, it inviteth discovery, as the more close air sucketh in the more open. And as in confession the revealing is not for worldly use, but for the ease of a man's heart, so secret men come to the knowledge of many things in that kind, while men rather discharge their minds than impart their minds. In a few words, mysteries are due to secrecy. Besides, to say the truth, nakedness is uncomely, as well in mind as body, and it addeth no small reverence to men's manners and actions if they be not altogether open. As for talkers and futile persons, they are commonly vain and credulous withal. For he that talketh what he knoweth will also talk what he knoweth not. Therefore set it down that an habit of secrecy is both politic and moral. And in this part, it is good that a man's face give his tongue leave to speak. For the discovery of a man's self by the tracks of his countenance is a great weakness and betraying, by how much it is many times more marked and believed than a man's words. For the second, which is dissimulation, it followeth many times upon secrecy by a necessity, so that he that will be secret must be a dissembler in some degree. For men are too cunning to suffer a man to keep an indifferent carriage between both, and to be secret without swaying the balance on either side. They will so beset a man with questions, and draw him on, and pick it out of him, that, without an absurd silence, he must show an inclination one way. Or if he do not, they will gather as much by his silence as by his speech. As for equivocations or oraculous speeches they cannot hold out long, so that no man can be secret except he give himself a little scope of dissimulation, which is, as it were, but the skirts or train of secrecy. But for the third degree, which is simulation and false profession, that I hold more culpable and less politic, except it be in great and rare matters, and therefore a general custom of simulation, which is this last degree, is a vice using either of natural falseness or fearfulness, or of a mind that hath some main faults, which, because a man must needs disguise, it maketh him practice simulation in other things, lest his hand should be out of use. The great advantages of simulation and dissimulation are three. First, to lay asleep opposition and to surprise. For where a man's intentions are published, it is an alarm to call up all that are against them. The second is to reserve to a man's self a fair retreat. For if a man engage himself by a manifest declaration, he must go through or take a fall. The third is, the better to discover the mind of another. For to him that opens himself, men will hardly show themselves adverse, but will fair let him go on and turn their freedom of speech to freedom of thought. And therefore it is a good shrewd proverb of the Spaniard, tell a lie and find a troth as if there were no way of discovery, but by simulation. There be also three disadvantages to set it even. The first, that simulation and dissimulation commonly carry with them a show of fearfulness, which in any business doth spoil the feathers of round, flying up to the mark. The second, that it puzzleth and perplexeth the conceits of many, that perhaps would otherwise cooperate with him and makes a man walk almost alone to his own ends. The third and greatest is that it depriveth a man of one of the most principal instruments for action, which is trust and belief. The best composition and temperature is to have openness in fame and opinion, secrecy in habit, dissimulation in seasonable use, and the power to feign if there be no remedy.